analog iPad today. I don't know about, are you guys nervous? Or am I the only one that's nervous this morning? It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, the wife's always more nervous. Uh, it's been a minute since I stood behind the pulpit up here. Uh, the last time I was here, my daughter was a freshman in high school. Two weeks ago, she celebrated her 20th anniversary. My son was a freshman in college. He retired from the Coast Guard two years ago. Jerry had dark hair. And Dave, for some reason, doesn't look any older than he did then. So, but it's good that you're here. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be back. I'm thankful that Brian invited me to preach. Uh, and I got to tell you a little story, and this has nothing to do with the message other than somewhat in application. But uh, when I returned to Friendship about four years ago, three and a half, right after Brian got here, um, I started coming back to church and uh, enjoyed Brian's passion for the Word and his passion uh, for the ministry and his passion for the church. And I really enjoyed that. And he wanted to meet with me, so he took me to dinner at Cracker Barrel and we talked. And the first thing I told him was, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to teach. I don't want to preach. I don't want to lead Sunday schools. I don't want to do anything. I said, the problem with being a, uh, a former pastor is, or, or being a pastor and going into a church, people think, well, gosh, he's a pastor. He can do this, or he should do that. I said, I don't want to do anything. But Brian patiently encouraged me, and Brian consistently challenged me, and Brian invited me to study the Word with him and discuss theology and because of Brian's faithful discipleship, that lethargic, apathetic ember that was barely a glow was sparked back. And I appreciate that, and I thank him for that. And like I say, that's all free. That's not even part of where we're going today. Uh, there was a young man that his parents sent him to go spend a couple weeks with his elderly grandparents. And he was especially close with his grandfather. And after the two weeks, his parents picked him up and on the car ride back, his father said, son, did, did you get any wisdom and, from your grandfather during the two weeks there? And the boy squinted with one eye and thought for a minute and he said, Never look too long at an old man's feet. Come on, think about it. <laughs> We're talking about wisdom this morning. What does it mean to be wise? What does it mean to be foolish? What is wisdom and what is foolishness? And we're going to be looking in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 through 28. And we've been studying the book of, of Proverbs for a, a couple summers now. And this summer we've already been looking at things. Um, we've looked at honesty and humility and money. And you notice the two weeks on the card are reversed because Ryan and I switched places because I won't be here next week. 
Ryan's going to be looking at family next week, diligence, anger, and justice. Today we look at wisdom, and what you see is wisdom is woven in all of those things. Wisdom and the use of wisdom is, is tied up in all of those things. Most of the Psalms, or most of the Proverbs that we look at were written by Solomon, who was considered the wisest man in the Bible. Today's message, the, the passage that we look at today, is not written by Solomon. It's written by a man named Ag Agur, the son of Jacob, the oracle, who, strangely enough, in verse 2 of the, of the chapter we're looking at, says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. That's who wrote our proverb for today. So the question is, what does it take for us to be counted as being wise? And what does it mean for us to be foolish? Our memory verse, um, if that's up, we'll do that right now. And it's Proverbs chapter 26, verse 7. And it says, can we say, we say it together? Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for being with us. And Lord, we invite you, uh, as I asked earlier, to invade our hearts. Father, give us an understanding of what it means to be wise. And how we can live a life of wisdom and how we can avoid being foolish in all that we do. Lord, we ask that you would bless us this morning, as only you can do, in Jesus' name, amen. And you have to bear with me with um, getting used to my new configuration of my mouth. So, unlike Pastor Brian, who always gives us the ABI, the author's big idea, he gives us that up front, that way he says if you fall asleep or if you don't pay attention or if you have to leave, you've got the best takeaway already in your head. Uh, today we're not going that route. You're going to have to stick with me. You're going to have to pay attention to find out exactly where we are going. So if you've got your Bible there, look in Proverbs chapter 30. Reading at verse 24. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong, not, are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. When Brian first asked me to preach, we were sitting in his office, and he said, would you preach on wisdom and foolishness? And he said, here are some scriptures. He said, I've got a list here of some you can use. He said, I really like this one. Uh, he said, and he, the reason he liked it, because he said it's strange, but it's pretty cool. And when I first read it, I thought, immediately, it's like, I'm not preaching on that. <laughs> it's like, what is that? What is that? Uh, it, it talks about strange things aligned with being wise. But after I got home and I started thinking about wisdom and I started thinking about what I would say, 
I really became intrigued. What could Agur, the, pro, the, the writer of this proverb, what could he be telling us? Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. And I could also say they are extremely wise. Some translations say it means they're wiser than wise. And even another translation said they are wiser than the wise, meaning these four small creatures are wiser than any man is wise. And it lists ants, rock badger. That's an interesting term because it, I don't know what translation you're reading out of this morning, but they must have had trouble translating it because some versions call them conies. Some call them rabbits. The New American Standard says they're Shephaniah. And this one I've never even heard of, a hyrax and a mouse. So it really doesn't have anything to do with how we understand what it is. It's something small that God has created and has told us that they are wise. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I don't quickly correlate ants, rock badgers, locusts, and lizards with wisdom. What is it? And as I looked at this, some commentary said, well, the ants, they have foresight, organization, they make provisions for the future. The rock badgers, they have ingenuity to find security and places to live. The locusts, they work together in cooperation and they work in an orderly fashion. And the lizard is elusive and bold. But you know, when I think about it, I think, ah, that really doesn't make sense to me. These four small things are exceedingly wise. What is it that makes them wise? Webster uh, uh, defines, wi defines wisdom as this, the ability to, to discern inner qualities and relationships, insight, good sense, good judgment. How does that correlate to an ant or a rock badger? or a locust, or a lizard. Hack Spirit, which is a online thing, lists 17 qualities of one who is considered wise. It says that they learn from their mistakes and experiences. They are open-minded. They don't assume that they're always right. They don't have a big ego. They have thick skin. They are observant. They're always learning. They are able to think and reflect. They are accepting of change. They're not too concerned with material things. They are cool, calm, and collected. They give fantastic advice. They tend to be introspective. They notice things that most people don't bother with. They are not fond of small talk. They are compassionate. They don't judge, and they are humble. And I think there's wisdom in all of those. I think there is a taste and some aspects of wisdom in those words. How does that relate to an ant or a rock badger or a locust or a lizard? In the Christian world, we link knowledge with wisdom. Our 
our heavenly definition of wisdom is to be knowledgeable. And actually, prior to preparing this sermon, I define wisdom like this. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to use knowledge. Partly correct. Partly correct. But can we really say that wisdom is knowledge? Our scripture says that the ants, the rock badgers, the locusts, and the lizards are wiser than wise. But knowledge doesn't come to my mind as I go out to the kitchen in the morning and there's a trail of ants across the floor and up the cupboard and across the counter to the little dab of jelly. I don't immediately go, what wise little creatures. I rode my bike the other day and I had to stop and take a break and I leaned against a tree and it's like all of a sudden it's like I felt stuff on my legs. Ants. And I didn't look down and go, wow, those dudes are smart. We don't think of that. Knowledge doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. I asked my wife to be able to share this because she is extremely close to her father. He's passed away now. He was a great man, and I, so much of what I know I learned from him. He's the smartest man I ever knew. He was brilliant. He could remember anything. He knew a whole lot about a whole lot of stuff. He was a dentist. He went to school at Ohio State, graduated in 1956. For several semesters of his medical school, he never bought books. He read his roommate's books, remembered what was said, and took the tests and passed his courses. He could read a magazine. Three months later, he could tell you what magazine, where on the page, and what it said. And he was always right. He could remember everything. You remember the game, So You Want to Be a Millionaire? And they said you could call a friend. He would be the one you call. I mean, he knew about every. He knew about finance. He knew about automobiles. He knew about mechanics. He knew about everything. He decided he wanted to repair clocks, so he began repairing clocks and watches. I mean, he could do it all. But all of that knowledge, unfortunately, never transformed itself into him being a wise man. He didn't make wise decisions with a lot of parts of his life. Wisdom or knowledge for him didn't translate to him being wise. And we often think, if we look today and if you look online to see who is wise, look up the list of wise people, and we think of people like Einstein and Tesla and Gates, and Bezos, and Elon Musk. Men of wisdom, and in, or of knowledge and intellect. But read about their lives. They're not wise people. Knowledge is not wisdom. Knowledge is not, wisdom is not connected to knowledge the way that we think it is. So we've been looking at what it isn't. Knowledge isn't wisdom. It's not intellectual ability. It's not even emotional stability. You know, the people that can remain calm in any type of crisis, not necessarily wisdom. When Mike and I met each other, we both realized that even gray hair 
doesn't correlate to being wise. <laughs> Sorry about that, Mike. That was just for you. So I want to look, what is wisdom? So let's go to the beginning, the book of Genesis. These are familiar verses, and it's so easy to read quickly over these. The book of Genesis, Genesis itself means beginnings. And sometimes I think we take that, well, this is the beginning, and once we read this, we're done with the beginning, and we can move on. But what we need to remember is these verses in Genesis are extremely important in theology. And that just means simply they're important in how we think about God. They are critical to our understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. So let's begin. And there's, we're, we're going to look at a lot of scripture here today, but... Bear with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each, and get this verse, each according to its kind. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let the lights in the expanse separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, uh, the greater to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning a fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves which swarms in the water according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. And it was so. Do you see what God's doing? 
in this scripture? He's creating. He's building something. And what he's building is even more compact, complex than trying to assemble IKEA furniture. You see, God is creating out of nothingness. He is creating the universe. And if they're up, there should be a couple pictures of the Webb Telescope's newest pictures. God did that. He made those. They're there because he wants them to be there and because he holds them there. He is establishing the world and the universe. It's structured. It's ordered. It's perfect. God designed it to function perfectly. It is good. It is pleasing. It is precious. It is perfect. It is intelligently, and I would even say divinely, designed. God established a pattern that informs us of our behavior. And it's perfect. According to their kind, he established the world. Jeremiah 10:12 Jeremiah says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. Psalm 104:24 says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Four things are small, but they are exceedingly wise. Why is an unintelligent, unknowledgeable, unemotional ant or rock badger, or locust, or lizard. Why are they wiser than wise? Because they behave exactly as God created them to. God designed them perfectly. And within them, he placed an instinct. He gave them everything they need to live and to prosper. And they do that. Continuing in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God, God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, 
I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, a sixth day. To be wise is to follow the design that God has set. It's to follow God's pattern. Man, the pinnacle of God's creation, the only thing made in his image, created and designed by God. He created mankind with everything necessary to live and to prosper. Mankind was created. We were created. We were designed by God for fellowship. And we were designed to glorify God. And like every good fairy tale, they lived happily ever after. Not so. Genesis chapter 3. To be wise is to follow God's directions. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and that they knew that they were naked. And they sewed figs to leaves together and made loincloths. Foolishness is thinking we know better than God. Foolishness is thinking there's something out there that we need that God didn't provide. Foolishness is rejecting God. It's saying, God, we don't need you. You're okay. We appreciate what you told us, but you know, maybe you held something back. Maybe it's better for me to make my own decisions. And when they did that, that beautiful garden, that intimate, beautiful, peaceful garden, where they had a relationship with God that was unbelievable, it was shattered in an instant. God's perfect creation was now not so perfect because man made a decision to mess it up. We broke that separation. We wonder why our lives are a mess. We wonder why we're surrounded by chaos. Why is our world in a mess? Why is our world in chaos? Romans chapter 1, and this is a familiar scripture, but I want you to listen to the language of this. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Ungodliness is, means that we live as if there's no God. That's what being ungodly is. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, they are without excuse. For all they knew, though, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, the dishonoring of the bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Why is our world in chaos? Why are our lives in chaos? Because we think we can do it better without God. We kind of want to play it like the quarterback. You know, the coach has a play and he has a plan for the game. And sometimes the quarterback goes in and he has the play that the coach had given him, but he decides he's going to call an option. He's going to call an audible because he thinks he's got a better plan. He, he thinks that the coach doesn't see what he sees. He thinks the coach doesn't know what he knows because he's on the field. And you see, that's what it is we do with God. We sometimes think, you know, God, you're not here. You really don't understand. You don't understand how bad that hurt me when so-and-so said this or that. So I'm going to retaliate because that's just what I need to do. And whatever that might be, that's one example. But we decide that we've got a better plan than God. And we can choose better than he can. Because we fail to follow the wise path, we think we know better. We think we've discovered a better way. We think we're entitled to more. We decide that we can remove God from the throne of our life, and then we can climb on the throne and make our foolish decisions. It was disastrous for Adam and Eve, and it is disastrous for us as well. We can never govern our lives better than God can govern our lives, guys. He created it. He enabled it. He empowered it. He equipped us to follow Him. He knows what's best. We need to follow Him. We can never... Someone has said the only thing that God has created that didn't do what it was designed to do is you and I. We're the ones that stepped out of line. But all creation has paid the price for it. Scripture says that all creation groans, waiting for Christ to redeem it and to be brought back to its full glory. But you know, when we look at this, it doesn't have to be that way. God, because of his love and through his grace, he provides a way to repair the breach. He, prepare, he prepared and provides the way to restore the fellowship. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, and listen to the language in this again. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the, wise, the foolish of the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is greater than wise men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul, writing to the Colossians, said this, Their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you remember the first verse I read when we were talking about creation in Genesis and Jeremiah, it's thought it was through God's wisdom that the earth was established and through his understanding that things were, the heavens were stretched out. God's wisdom did that. God's wisdom is once again brought to the earth in the form, in the person of the second part of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Scripture says he is the wisdom of God. In the beginning, God started with nothing. He created a completely harmonious, well-ordered universe. We use the term cosmos, and that means orderly, harmonious, systematic. That's what God created. Order, systematic, harmony. But man, by deciding to do it his own way, brought chaos, which is utter confusion. But God, through Christ, restores cosmos. He restores the ability for you and I to live correctly before him. He restores the ability for you and I to fellowship with him. And back in, again in Romans, and these are all familiar scriptures. Romans chapter 5, verses 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we are enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. You see, we can, restore, we can be restored through Jesus Christ. Christ came to forgive us for our sin. He came to forgive us for that rebellion. He came to provide the, pay the penalty for that rebellion. He died on the cross to pay for those price for those sins. And he was raised from the dead by the power of God in order that we could be restored to relationship and fellowship with God. And that's all just the introduction, guys. <laughs> How do we become wise? How do we live life wisely? First of all, there is knowledge connected to wisdom. To be wise is, first of all, to know God. 
Proverbs chapter nine, or yeah, Proverbs nine ten says, "The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight." Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we're afraid. As believers, we have no reason to fear God. As believers, God is never angry with us. God is never shocked by what we do and how we fail. And God never backs up and goes, man, I'm tired. I don't want any part of this. God's always walking toward us, reaching toward us, trying to restore us. What it means when we talk about fearing God is a healthy respect. It's understanding that the God that hung those galaxies thousands of years ago is in control. That's power. That deserves our fear, our respect, our honor. In the book of Hosea chapter 4, in one of the messages of judgment on Israel, Hosea says, The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness, there is no steadfast love, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. Then speaking a little bit later in the same chapter to the priest, he continues, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. We have to know God. We have to understand who God is. How do we do that? Only through this. Only through this. We live in a world where absolute truth has been rejected. Truth now, we're told, is what we experience. Truth is what we feel. It's what we think. That's in the world, but it's unfortunate, but I think that creeps into our churches as well. Thinking that our experiences are what define God, or our feelings are what define God. We can never know God and who He truly is by our experience or by our feelings, because we can't trust them. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite shows, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And when Ebenezer Scrooge is confronted by Marley's ghost, and he comes into the room, and Marley's ghost, do you believe me? And Ebenezer Scrooge says, no, you may be a bit of undigested beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. We can't trust our feelings to know who God is. They'll deceive us, but his word will never deceive us. We have to know God by how he has revealed himself to us in his word. And the greatest revelation we have of who he is was in the second person of the Trinity again, Jesus Christ. Jesus said this in John 14, 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Do you want to live a wise life? Look closely at God's greatest expression of his love. Do you want to know how he wants us to behave? Look at Jesus Christ and let him be our exemplar. And that's simply a word that means a great person to follow.
to be counted to be to to be counted as wise is to know God, but to be counted as wise is also to listen to God. In the course of feeding the five, the four thousand, after having fed the five thousand earlier, the disciples of Jesus are once again quibbling about, "Oh man, we have no bread. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle this?" And Jesus comes up to them and he says, Do you not yet perceive or do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? Hearing God is not listening to words. It's listening for his voice. Do you realize that we can hear God's word and yet never hear his voice? I read this quote, I love quotes, and I read this quote last week, and anybody that's a teacher here will, may like this. Mortimer Adler said, he defined a lecture as this, when the notes of the teacher become the notes of the student without passing through the mind of either. I think sometimes that's what we do with God's word. And I think that's sometimes what we do when we listen to sermons. We sit and listen to the preacher's notes, and we write down our notes, and yet we never hear the voice of God calling us to change, calling us to return, calling us to listen to him. See, we need to understand when, when Ryan stood to speak this morning and he read the scripture, we heard his voice, but do you know who was speaking? Those are God's words. We have to take that seriously, folks. I read just a while ago in one of the books I was reading, the Protestant church in Geneva in the 1500s. During their Sunday services, they read through the entire Bible once and the New Testament three times every year. So I went and looked up on Google how much time that would take. That's about 110 hours. So two hours and ten minutes of their service every week was devoted to simply reading the Word of God because they understood we have to hear Him to know Him, and we have to hear Him in order to be wise. I'm guilty of hearing my wife and not listening to her. I'm guilty of hearing God and not listening to Him as well. That's foolishness. We need to listen to God. And finally, to be counted as wise, we need to hear, we need to know God, we need to listen to God, and we need to obey God. We see clearly from Genesis 3 and Romans chapter 1 how disobeying God leads to foolishness. Likewise, our obedience leads to being wise. And the call to worship scripture this morning that, that Rob read, James chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Who is wise and who is understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You see, our obedience is connected to wisdom. We can never be wise without being obedient to God. Just like the ant, the rock badger, the locust, the lizard, we need to behave 
in the wise confines of God's perfect design. We must strive to be consistently faithful and obedient. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. This isn't legalism. You know, this, this isn't tacking a list of laws on the wall and going, yep, checked it off, checked it off, checked it off. What it means to be consistently obedient to God means that our consistently we are checking the condition of our heart. Are we desiring to faithfully and obediently follow God? Are we consistently reminding ourselves of who is the creator and who is the created? Proverbs or Psalm 14:1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. I could probably ask every one of you individually, would you say that there is no God? And I doubt that any of you would say, yeah, I don't believe there's a God. But do our, does our behavior betray what we say we believe? Do we just say we believe God and live our life on our terms instead of being recognizing that he should be governing our life? To live, to live unto ourselves is foolishness, to live unto God is wise. In Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, following some very hard verses on what it means to love him more than anything else in life, Jesus said this, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, but whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wisdom is living consistently and behaving consistently, remembering that he is God and I am not. It's consistently striving to put off our flesh and put on the spirit and be renewed by the spirit. It's consistently trying to walk by God's spirit and not by our fleshly desires. And there could, we could go on for a whole lot of other things. We could talk about even the two greatest commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And sometimes we think those are equal, but you know they're not. The first one says, love God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. God is still God. And I am not. And you guys aren't either. We need to surrender. We need to follow him. To live wise is to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being with us today, and we pray that your words would touch our hearts, and that, Father, we have, I pray that we have listened, and I pray that, Father, we would allow those words to work in our heart. And I'm not talking about the words that I said. I'm talking about the words that you said, your words are the only ones that are important, Father. We ask that you would pierce our heart with them and that, Father, we would leave here today more obedient, more in line with how you have created us. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.